We know that in the next 18 months, there could be about 2 million square feet of sublet space hitting one of the major markets, right? And you don't pick that up by just looking at the data, but you pick it up by based on relationships and discussions. Welcome to the CRE Exchange Podcast, where we deep dive into the global trends and challenges of CRE professionals across all sectors of the commercial real estate industry. We engage with experts in the space to bring you innovative insights into industry practices, opportunities, and challenges to better inform your decisions. This episode is brought to you by Altus Group, a global leader in asset and fund intelligence for commercial real estate. At Altus, we bring together capabilities across technology, analytics, valuations, tax, and development advisory services. We are guided by bold thinking, integrity, and inclusivity, partnering with CRE professionals to maximize opportunities with exceptional service experience. Find out more at altusgroup.com. Here's your host, James Harkness. I'm so happy to have you all here and also to have this great panel to discuss the future of CORE. So obviously something that's on the top of everyone's mind and everyone has different opinions of CORE. But starting from, I guess, your left and my right, we've got Omar El-Tari, who's one of our kind of researchers here at Altus, focused more on the U.S. And I'm going to let the panel introduce themselves as they work those bios into their introductions. But I would encourage you to look at their LinkedIn profiles if you want to see more of their careers. We've got Ray Wong, who's also a researcher at Altus Group. And to Ray's left, your right, we've got Phil Stone, who's also come from Toronto, from Bethel Green Oak. So great panel. Got a bunch of questions that we've talked about as we've prepared for this panel. Phil, when you're thinking about core, what sectors are you thinking about in terms of a core allocation or ones that you should be worried about? Yeah, sure. So maybe I could just give a bit of context too. Bethel Green Oak is a global real estate investment manager. We've got roughly 82 billion assets under management and about half of that is in the core plus space, call it the rest being value add. And in Canada, we've historically been a core manager and now looking into value add strategies as well. So broadly, we've got a variety of strategies across the capital stack, but across the, the risk spectrum as well. My role in Canada is head of Canadian research. And so I work closely with our portfolio managers. It's really set client strategies and working with our transactions team on executing on those strategies as well. We've certainly, if we think about core across North America, the one thing we're cautious of looking across and getting away from maybe more traditional sectors like office retail to four major food groups is kind of shifting to this CapEx light approach to when we're, even when we're thinking about alternatives as well. In the U.S., for example, self-storage, for example, in Canada, the opportunity set is a lot more limited in some of those alternative sectors for sure, but it's growing, it's emerging, and I think there's some opportunities there. Again, looking at ways to get at what I would call CapEx light strategies. We've heard a lot of negative things about office today. That would be the one that puts obviously top of mind for the reasons that Scott mentioned. But I think back, like we're in a pretty good position with both our Canadian portfolio, core portfolio and our U.S. portfolio. Can't say we saw the pain that we're enduring right now and going through. There was a few signals early on as we saw more remote work happening. Of course, the pandemic accelerated all that. But we saw the supply risks, particularly in Canada, especially in downtown markets, supply coming online. And so we've made a huge shift in terms of allocation. Both portfolios, Canada and U.S., call it mid-40s in terms of the percentage allocation to office, now down to 20, and in one case, below 20%. So huge shift there. And again, upweighting sectors like multifamily, industrial, and again, some of these niche sectors as well. Yeah, just on the office, you've got the other thing, you've got now headwinds with tech layoffs. 
we haven't started to see that come into job losses in some of the other sectors, financial services, but we're just starting to see that, I think. So you've got those cyclical headwinds now. I think once corporate earnings start to roll over, you'll see more of that. I think Dr. Gupta did a fabulous job this morning highlighting it, but this acceleration of technology, particularly with generative AI and the impacts that that is going to have on knowledge work is, I think, going to be quite dramatic and in a hurry. Yeah, definitely. I'm assuming you're not using any chat GPT for your research reports or anything yet, right, Phil? It's like, Absolutely, we are. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Makes it easier. And so, Omar, maybe over to you, because you think about capital markets quite a bit. And the message from Phil that I just heard is core means less capex. You could also think of allocations to core funds by large institutional investors and that they have a choice, right? They don't have to go into private equity real estate. And I'm just wondering, Omar, in your perspective, if we see that the potential for core is also in a bit of jeopardy because people might be happy going back to bonds or other fixed interest type of investments. So maybe make a comment on that just to round out the allocation for us. Yes, certainly. I think the role of core and the concept of core remains the same. However, it's how core is bind and getting the characteristics that are sought with core. That's the element that is changing. I do think a return of real yield across other instruments is likely, I wouldn't say it's pulling away from core, but from the capital like allocation standpoint of you're now putting core real estate into the context of this higher yield environment. But if you do look at allocations across a lot of institutional capital allocations are actually just climbing, they are still climbing for real estate because it is income producing. Also, you do have a real asset, which helps stabilize a overall portfolio metrics. I do think that is not going to change, but I do think that it really does become very much more focused on selection of managers who can deliver on those core returns, as well as those managers, their selection of assets. I think that's really where it's changing. So the concept of core might not be changing at the high level, but how it's deployed and how you actually capture those core returns. I think that's really the element that we're hopefully exploring on this panel and right. that everybody's thinking. Yeah, I mean, I think no doubt people like real estate because it's something you can relate to. So, Ray, just over to you. You've seen cycles and you study cycles. You're an economist by training. Like, are we in a lower for longer return period here for core funds or what's your take on that? I'm not an economist. I didn't fact check. Sorry, Ray. <laughs> How about just genius? So as a genius who happens to do research in real estate. Here's the thing with data, because everyone talks about that total sort of evolution, evolution retail, evolution of office. So when you talk about the office market, on the positive side, if you look at the core assets, if you look at the A buildings that are leasing, to a certain extent, it's about 90% for most of the major pension funds of vacant space, right? But you look at the availability and the availability gap is the sublet, and that's that two to three year term left. So basically the institutions have that gap to flex to a certain extent with to buy some time to look at what the core assets are. What we're dealing with now is that we talked about the last two years with life sciences. The other hot topic now is hotels based on the occupancy levels, based on the hotel rates that you're seeing because everyone's traveling again, they're looking at that as perhaps an underutilized asset, right? And whether or not that core assets, but with respect to the different percentages. But what we're looking at is discuss this more in regards to the demographics and the interest rates. 
So you watch some of the, especially on the residential side on the developers, they're hedging their bet because they know that once interest rates drop, the market's going to take off on the housing side. Everyone's sort of watching that and everyone's lining up their projects. So right now, everything is slow, very limited in way of investment activity. But that goes to Scott, your comment as well with sort of that pool of dollars on the sideline. Once that stabilizes and once people understand what the bid-ask spread is and that they're comfortable investing, this is the opposite because I'm really negative. But I'm actually optimistic in the next two or three years regards to how that shift moves. So that's what we're looking at. We're looking at a demographic shift, the impact of the work from home. And the impact on the second and tertiary markets, but what happens with the evolution of space in the next two or three years and whether or not it's permanent or not. And that's the hedge right now. Companies are trying to figure out how can they be flexible in the next two or three years and still bear out in the way of having enough space if it returns, but as well as if it doesn't, be able to get rid of that space quick. So flexibility sounds like it's key. Interesting. And a while back, offices wanted to have hoteling for their employees. Now Ray's saying hotels are better replacement than office. But so it sounds like you're saying, oh, you like hotels as a sector, subsector. Yeah. This month. Okay. Good stuff. And Phil, from your perspective, what should be keeping them up at night? What are those risks that are out there? Talked about CapEx light, talked about maybe some of the subsectors or where you're allocating, but what do you think on that? Just picking up on maybe a couple of things that Omar mentioned. I think the next 10 years is obviously going to be a lot different than the last 20 years. I think for a couple reasons, I think one, like very high level macro, one is inflation. I'm not necessarily in the secular inflation camp, but I think it is going to be higher than it was before. And so how do central banks respond to that? And what does that mean? I think the other piece is technology and how that's changing technology, consumer preferences, and how those two are intertwined and how it's changing how we use real estate. And so I think those two forces are, again, going to accelerate. Again, going back to Dr. Gupta, I think he teed this, this day up really well because I think he said the next 10 years, we're going to see more change than has happened in the past 25 years. And so with that change, I think there's going to be a lot of volatility. And with that, you get a greater dispersion of returns. And so if you look at longer term studies in core managers versus value add managers, for example, dispersion of returns for core managers was pretty small and value add was quite wide. Going forward, it's going to be a different. Yeah, I think core managers' performance is going to be wider. And I think it goes to Omar's point on asset selection. It's more of a bottoms up. You got to get the top down sector allocation geography. But I think the real alpha is going to be driven by that bottoms up active alpha management. And so we spend a lot of time thinking about how our customers are using real estate and how that's shifting. And I think you want to be in a world of 2% growth. You want to be the real estate partner that houses that 5 and 6% growth within the economy. And so it's thinking about how you get at that, right? Trying to find where you can take advantage of that. Call it GDP growth coming back to a normal level, but where are you going to find that extra little bit, either through allocation or really working your asset properly, being strategic on Yeah, because again, you're going to see a wider dispersion across various industry sectors as well. And so I think much like, I think the equity markets will, the broader equity markets will be going forward. There's going to be more active management and it will be more operational intensive as just by nature of the fact that you're going to have to generate returns through growing income. We don't have those tailwinds of lower interest rates behind us anymore. Yeah. So more active management, less of a balanced fund approach. Omar, should investors be worried about their GPs and this refinancing question that's come up? It's obviously a very serious issue. And I'm just wondering if you can maybe help us 
understand in terms of if like bank and non-bank lenders are putting up gates, like what does that look like from a risk perspective for some of these core funds? Yeah, I'm not going to say you should worry about your GP, right? But I do think that they're, I hate to say it, but like the math has changed, right? In terms of financing, it is certainly something that we heard this on the panel that was just before that from the, at least from the lender perspective, they're certainly expecting borrowers. There's a higher likelihood of more, whether borrowers or more equity needing to be added to deals. I wouldn't make a statement of be concerned about GPs, but I do think that the GPs are going through and the analysis and they are starting to make those decisions around which assets do we want to keep and reinvest in, which are winners, and then which are those that maybe we can see how they just pan out by themselves and others let's kick out. I do think that the higher rate environment certainly challenge. I do think that we'll likely see a number of GPs have to make those tough calls. And I think that's about as specific as I would get, right? Yeah, no, I also <laughs> was a pretty generic and proud question, but it is something I think just to come back to your partner or come back to if you have an asset that maybe was bolted on to the core fund, but it's not in a geography or a sector that you're really confident in your asset manager, then maybe that is one that you let go and maybe find a seller where you have to do a vendor take back or you have to find some other way to creatively finance that giving out of your portfolio. I'll actually just add yeah. one thing. I do absolutely think that we're in retrospect, right? If you fast forward, we're going to be able to look back and see managers that they found the old playbook, right? Past crazies playbooks can never be reused <laughs> the exact same way. I do think that there are going to be winners coming out of this and we'll see how they reacted. But especially from the GP standpoint, right, there are going to be a lot of tough decisions. Yeah, I think anchoring a lot of those decisions is just investing notion and theory of diversification, right? So you'll have to like diversify on your debt, on the type of assets and the equity that you own. And Ray, so from your perspective, risks and types of risks that you're seeing the data that are worrisome. The challenge with that is that we've seen, everyone's mentioned the whole Silicon Valley thing and whether or not we're out of it. There's going to be some lingering effects, even though there's a push for stability. And any type of some doubts in the market or the stability will result in basically lack of decisions or actions, right? So before with the low interest rates with basically almost free money, you can afford to make a mistake and you had half decent returns and fundamentals that three to five years you can pan out. But now based on certain cap rates, especially on the core side for the multi-res and industrial, you can't really buy something at three to four and borrow at seven or eight and expect the returns to hit 20 or 30. Now, I think it was slated early for industrial, maybe about eight to 9% increase depending on the region up to 15%. So you're about half. Right. So can you really afford to look at those assets? That's why we're also looking at other areas. And again, the whole demographics and the shift of talent and the whole housing issue and affordability, there's that big shift, not just from the work from home, but into the secondary communities, which is offering some sort of affordability and as well as some increase in activity on the housing side. But as well as I think it's also getting noticed a little bit more, the diversity of the portfolio but to actually make some bets on some land plays for future growth. So I think, and I agree with that, Colin, what's worked in the past based on the core has really changed. And the whole world's changed from the demographics to the preference to work from home, the evolution of office space. But going forward, the biggest issues we still have is, regardless of the interest rates, we still have a housing affordability, and especially in Canada, there's just not enough being built based on a million 
people on the immigration numbers. And based on only about 85,000 new homes built each and every year, the math just doesn't work. So going forward, this goes back to the negative side that I'm not sure in about two or three years, we might be back in that same spot where housing prices go back up and we have a big problem with increased affordability and how people are going to shift to work and where actually the secondary markets might pan out better than Toronto or Vancouver, just from a cost standpoint. So cost standpoint in the secondaries, but also maybe a better, call it capital return or capital appreciation on your return. Definitely on the growth side. We look at the industrial numbers and the secondary markets. You look at the cost from construction to land, they're about a third of that compared to the major markets, right? Whether that pans out based on the demographic shifts, right? So those are the things that you have to look at. Yeah. And I guess getting that scale in those smaller markets is tough too, though, yeah, right? Absolutely. It's a big core fund and how do you write a couple billion dollar check? Definitely a concern. Any other comments, panel, before we move on to the next part of the discussion, which I just thought was really going to be more on like the aspirations for core funds, but anything on risk, like there's no doubt as people get older, they're going to need more care and life sciences and some of the biopharma and other types of companies are important to that. To get you back into this, like is core an irrelevant tag for these funds in the future or does it really still in real estate come down to location and who your partner is and your ability to execute on the models that you use to decide to get into a building in the first place? Yeah, no, so definitely all that. I don't think the core label is going away anytime soon. I think, again, maybe pick it up on something Omar brought up earlier. I think investors in core still expect 70 to 80% of their returns to be steady, stable cash flows. That's probably shifted a bit in terms of expectations. It's probably a little bit more from capital appreciation going forward than it maybe has been. But I think that key component is still there. And I think what helps define core relative to other strategies, unless we come up with a clever name for it. But But I think key is, again, being cautious of style drift, I think. And it's all great to try and get at some of those other higher growth sectors, geographies is all well and good, but I think I can't stress it enough. You have to have that expertise, both with your partners and your operating partners that you're working with, but also a lot of times that's going to mean in-house. Think about how you scale that team in-house. The life science is the perfect example of that, but I think it applies to other sectors as well. Seniors is one, for example. Sure. Huge operating component of that business, and you have to be able to understand that side of it. And ultimately, you should be generating a higher return for that. And so at the end of the day, our investors are looking for risk-adjusted returns that meet their expectations. I don't think the label core is going away anytime soon. Yeah, I guess it'll evolve and maybe some of the measures that we looked at, like LTV ratios or expectation returns, maybe change a bit too. That's the one thing that's definitely not changing, I think, is the, okay. is the debt component. I right. think, especially going forward in this, I think, more volatile environment, I think that will be more of the same from a leverage perspective. We'll see how that's going to play out over the, the next little bit. And I think there'll be some lessons learned there from a core perspective. I don't think that changes. I think it's still 30 less percent in, in core. For sure. So leverage isn't going to change. You want to be CapEx light. So really that comes down to net operating income, right? Is if you're going to protect your interest for your yield of your properties, you're going to really operate the heck out of these buildings. It's that simple. Yeah. yeah just, just like that. <laughs> really right? difficult. Okay. You heard it here folks. <laughs> of the day. And speaking of tips, maybe Omar, can you tell us the types of tools that a portfolio manager or a CIO or an asset allocation team needs in this kind of forward-looking environment where we, it sounds like the consensus is rates are going to stay where they are. We're not expecting this massive acceleration in rates in the next little bit. Want to comment on that? Just like types of tools and 
No, it's really more from like, you study the markets, you read a lot, you're talking to both owners, investors and so on. So I'm just like curious. So I do think real estate has always had its own kind of jargon. Real estate loves having its own identity. And I think really over the last, over the last like probably two years, macro has really been the driver of pretty much every conversation, whether that's, and I'm not saying that's never come up before because I, real estate does reflect the economy, it reflects society, it reflects the world that we do live in and capital is a big part of that. But I definitely think that the conversations that we've had over the last two years and we continue to have are tying all of these themes together. And so I do think that whether it's managers, PMs, investors, everybody in that kind of like ecosystem is trying to not only tie the data that represents the past, but also bring it together on the what ifs going forward. So I do think that analysis and that process is just going to be kind of baseline going forward. There are many tools and techniques that I do think are going to shift or are gradually shifting there, but getting down to the basics, right? And this is where I think this is part of the reason why a lot of these niche property types are coming into place because people are starting to, or not just starting to, but looking at cash flows attached to real assets and where's their opportunity and where does our scale and operational know-how, where can that be applied to generate that return for our investors? So whether that's creativity or I do think that all of that's going to really baseline go on board. So art and science involved in those tools. Yeah. Yes. So. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's where Plug for Altus and where you guys are pivoted and shifted in trying to help clients determine, okay, not just what market, but what is the sub-market, what is the neighborhood, and ultimately, what is that asset, and how do you start to incorporate some of the real-time data and that it's available out there into synthesizing that and understanding what are the real drivers of asset-level performance in, in an area. So I think that's something you guys have been working on and folks need to think about. And plug for Altus as well. It, you know what? It's the data itself, because the thing is, Omar and myself, we speak to a lot of people, right? Just based on a discussion a couple of weeks ago, we know that in the next 18 months, there could be about 2 million square feet of sublet space hitting one of the major markets, right? And you don't pick that up by just looking at the data, but you pick it up by based on relationships and discussions. And as well as getting over with some of the transactions that we're seeing in the marketplace, when you look at it, it's fantastic based on the cap rate. It's still at under 5% for downtown or suburban at, at 7% office. But we dig into it. You know that the top two floors of that office building that was sold, it says it's 92%, but it was leased by the owners. The real vacancy is at 72%. But just to protect that sale price, that's what they went in at. And as well as the vendor take back. And that's getting the deals over the finish line. So we look at pricing and data. I think the value that the researchers bring in is understanding some of that background data is not just what's being posted at a 5%, 6% count, but what is the underlying story behind it? So I think that's the value of the data and you can't just take the data verbatim, but it's that discussion point. I think that really makes the industry well, unique in the web community, but the relationships and digging up that type of information. Yeah, I think that's totally right. And my sense too is that investors and the kind of downstream money is going to be asking better questions of real estate and asking better questions of core portfolio managers. And the former's comment on tools, you're going to need tools to back up what that story looks like because every fund is going to have its idiosyncratic nature and investors really want to know 
that what's being delivered in terms of returns is what they signed up for. And I think that's a key thing. And Phil, last one, we heard the applause next door, so everyone knows we're almost at the end. <laughs> Don't clap yet, but Phil, what's keeping you optimistic? Yeah, I'll try to keep it quick, but no, I think just generally about our business, I think for all this scariness, all the uncertainty, sometimes you're overwhelmed by kind of the pace at which things are changing these days. We're still pretty optimistic. I think from a Bethel Greenwood perspective, we've recently had, going back two and a half years now, but a merger of both core and value add strategies, and we've built a global platform now. And so it's exciting to be able to talk to our LPs and potential investors and have a variety of solutions for their problem rather than just having a specific product to go and talk to them about. We're problem solvers now, and I think we have that variety of solutions across the capital stack and across risk profiles as well. So it's a really exciting time to be in, in real estate, as, as scary as it may seem <laughs> sometimes. Yeah, scary, but lots of opportunity. And I just want to thank Omar, thanks Ray, and also Phil for coming. And thank you all for being great audiences. Talk to these guys, find out what else they're thinking about. I had a whole bunch of questions on sustainability. Super important to all of our organizations, but that's something that you can tease out of them after. And other than that, enjoy the rest of the conference and enjoy the rest of the time. Thank you for listening to the CRE Exchange podcast powered by Altus Group. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a five-star review and be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. This episode is brought to you by Altus Group, a global leader in asset and fund intelligence for commercial real estate. At Altus, we bring together capabilities across technology, analytics, valuations, tax, and development advisory services. We are guided by bold thinking, integrity, and inclusivity, partnering with CRE professionals to maximize opportunities with exceptional service experience. Find out more at altusgroup.com.